Morning, everyone. It's so good to see you on this bright and sunny day. Uh, men, I want to talk to you for just a minute. Women, you can just kind of close your ears. So, like, have you ever been in a bad mood and uh, maybe uh, got into an argument with your wife and um, it got kind of heated and, and all of a sudden you don't know how it happened or what went on, but someone's sleeping on the couch? And uh, has that ever happened to any... Like, you'd, you'd think you'd figure it out. Like, why does this keep happening? You know, over and over. And uh, sometimes you just, you don't know, like, the tr there's a trigger or what it is, and you don't want to be that person, but you end up, and I'm not going to confirm or deny that that ever happens in my house. Um, but chapter 7 of Romans, it, it kind of hits on this topic. And why do we keep falling back into old ways? But let me, I want to set this message up a little bit differently this morning than I have the other ones, because uh, there's these expectations that oftentimes Christians have. And, and from my perspective, and maybe I, I just have more to learn, but there's a lot of unrealistic expectations, I think, that we face in the Christian life. Let me just start off here um, Something Jesus said, Matthew 5, 48, says, Therefore, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Um, that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for mistakes. <laughs> 1 Peter 1, 14, Peter writes, Behave like obedient children. Don't let your lives be controlled by your desires as they used to be. Always live as God's holy people should, because God is the one who chose you, and he is holy. And that's why the scriptures say, I am the holy God, and you must be holy too. Okay, so now we've got to be perfect, and now we've got to be holy. Then Paul wrote in Romans 6.12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. We read this last week. You don't obey its lust. Do not yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but yield yourselves to God as one alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you're under grace. Okay, so you've got to be perfect, you got to be holy, and you got to control sin at all times. <sighs> so let's just stay in bed, <laughs> not even leave the house, because we might mess up. Be perfect, be holy, put sin in, your, in its place in your life. It would look like every Christian should have the goal of being perfect and sinless all the time. We actually get this from uh, the 17th century. I'm going to do a little bit of a history lesson for you, if you don't mind, to sort of, how did we get to where we are today in, in the church? Um, some people believe that you can have complete sanctification and Christian perfection and personal holiness, and this came out of the 17th century. So before the, before the 15th century, uh, the church was ruled by, or people were ruled by an institutional church. They, the, the church held on to salvation. They could give you salvation or deny it. They could take your salvation away. They could excommunicate you, and you were damned to hell forever. That's the power the church had. But at the 15th century, with the Protestant Reformation, it's like we, we reclaimed the right to our own salvation. And they promoted um, salvation by grace through faith. And so it, it took the power of salvation away from the institutional church and put 
the responsibility onto individuals. They also took the Bible and put it into the vernacular or the people's language. Before, you weren't even allowed to read the Bible. You weren't, no one was uh, good enough or holy enough or trained enough or educated enough to read the Greek and the Hebrew and the Latin versions of the text that was out. So in Martin Luther's day, it came out in German, the common language. For the first time, people could actually get a hold of the Bible for themselves and see what it had to say for themselves. The 17th century brought a great deal of religious fervor, and several important movements began in the 17th century. Puritanism took shape in England. Puritanism, uh, it was supposed to be kind of total break away from the Catholic Church uh, for the Church of England, but it also brought individual accountability to God and a strict adherence to the Bible. In other words, we don't teach anything except for the Bible. It became paramount. Before, it was more life lessons, I suppose, or good, good, good thinking principles in your life. Also in the 17th century, pietism was birthed in Germany, along with the Moravian brethren. The influence was on a deeper personal spiritual life, coupled with responsibility to live uprightly. In other words, your actions had to demonstrate what you believe. If you're going to represent Christ, you better represent him well. Another movement called quietism uh, came into being, uh, taught by the Quakers in America, and it promoted an individual's ability to experience God through intentional uh, contemplation. In other words, you can, you can, in your own mind, sit before God and his word, and you can, you can reflect and meditate and contemplate and, and get to a place where you are at one with God, they would say. Um, you can actually determine God's will for your own life. You didn't have to ask the pastor or the priest to tell you what God's will was. And also in the 17th century, revivalism from John and Charles Wesley out of England. Was, they introduced a new concept called entire sanctification, which they promoted through their Methodist movement. So the 18th and 19th century saw the first Great Awakening, where masses and masses of people, thousands and thousands, were coming to Christ and having a personal experience. The first Great Awakening had a, 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 a great a sense of, of people having a, a personal uh, uh, conversion experience. So it wasn't just necessarily an intellectual, yeah, I believe in God, I'm good to go. It was something changed in you. Something was different after you accepted Christ into your life. The second great awakening, uh, led by Francis Asbury and Charles Finney and others, emphasized the need for personal holiness. Uh, and they had a lot of evangelistic revival meetings. So we had this, this, this um, pietism. Um, we had a holiness movement. And it started to be more and more focused on the fact that we, if we have Jesus as our Savior, if we have the blood that cleanses us from sin, if we are righteous, we can actually be perfect. And so this idea that you should never sin, you should never mess up, and also you, women, you couldn't wear pants or makeup or jewelry. Uh, a lot of these, these rules came into being to protect everyone from ever going the wrong direction. Um, you had to, the legalism came in. So what, what often happens when a movement starts, it, it starts with the best intentions. It brings us closer to God. It touches on something that's missing from the ordinary Christian life. But oftentimes, these movements go too far. They go to a place that can even be heretical uh, and dangerous. 
uh, and go to the extremes. And so what they started out to try and help a Christian faith become actually turns into something more detrimental and uh, brings isolation and brings uh, sometimes heresy. So the, uh, the 1840s, there is this new movement that came through the Methodist church. It was called a second blessing. So you would be converted first, and then you would get another blessing by the Holy Spirit, which would cleanse you from all unrighteousness and make you perfect and deal with original sin so that you would never even have a desire to sin. This all sounds great. <laughs> I wish that this had happened uh, for everyone. Where we, I mean, this sounds like heaven on earth. And that's, I think, what, what people were going for. The problem is, when I, when I come to this chapter in Romans, uh, there's, a, there's a, a disconnect from the people that say we should be perfect and sinless. And then Paul, kind of stopping, he's taking a breath here for a moment. He's done pretty heavy-duty theology up for the first six chapters, six and a half chapters. And then he says, you know what, guys? <laughs> I know that sin is dead. We saw the old life. Uh, Pastor Neil gave us a great version of what happens to the old life when he brought the um, mannequin up and shoved him down onto the stage and just sort of flopped there. I mean, keep that picture in mind. Like, that's the old life. It died when we gave our lives to Christ. It no longer has power over us. Christ set us free from the power of sin. So Paul is teaching this, and it's true, it's right, what he's saying. And then he says, you know what? There's still a problem. He says, I, well, let's just read the verse. Romans chapter 7, we'll start at verse 4. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ, and now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work with us, and, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now, verse 6, we have been released from the law, for we died to it, and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Keep that in mind. Well, then I... Am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Well, of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there was no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life, and I died so I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. I was trying to figure out how to illustrate this passage, and I thought, say you've been driving in a new place, and you've been driving maybe for, for an hour, you're, you're on a road trip, and suddenly you realize you don't know what the speed limit is in this section of the highway. And so you go the kind of speed that's comfortable to you, maybe, say, 100 kilometers an hour. It just, it just feels right to you. And you're driving along for a while, maybe half an hour, and then you come to a sign that says 80 kilometers an hour. You're going, uh-oh. I've been, I've been breaking the law for the last hour and a half. 
Like up, up to that point, you didn't realize that you were violating the speed limit. But now that you know the speed limit, you're going, oh man, I've, I've been messing up. And now you have a, you have a choice to make. <laughs> you, you just, I, just, I better go the speed limit. So Paul is saying, before I even knew the law, you know, I was okay. But once I found out about the law, then I realized that I'd been sinning. But maybe you just kind of enjoyed going 100. Maybe it felt good to go 100. And now the law says 80. You're going, I think I'm, I think I'm just going to go 100. I mean, I can go 100 if I want to go 100. And then you go 100 for a little while until you see the flashing lights behind you. And you realize that there's going to be a penalty to pay for willingly breaking the law. I mean, you had an excuse before if you got caught. Oh, I'm sorry, officer. I didn't understand that the, the speed limit had changed. But now you did it of your own free choice. You broke the law. And now you're getting angry because that guy behind you is going to pull you over and give you like a big fine. So you have another choice. Am I going to stop? <laughs> or can I outrun this guy? So maybe you say you make a bad choice. You go from, from bad to worser. <laughs> now you're going faster, trying to outrun this guy. And so now you, you're escalating the situation. And not only uh, are, are you not going to win this, this race, but you're going to have to buy new tires because they threw the spike belt across the highway. <laughs> you know, they're going to take your car away. They're going to probably take your license away. They're going to probably put you in jail. Then you've got to go to court. Like, one thing after another after another just keeps getting worse. But it, and it all started with that little sign. That if the, if the, you know, the sign wasn't bad, the sign isn't evil, it, it's just informative. It just tells you that this, it's 80 kilometers an hour. That's just what it is. And you could get mad at the sign, but what's the point? Paul is saying like, the law is there to inform us of, of the fact that there are certain ways of living that bring life, bring abundant life, bring joy, bring peace. And if you violate these things, then there's consequences, there's penalties, and sometimes it just escalates. It gets worse and worse and worse. Verse 12, he says, But still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human and a slave to sin. Another translation says, I am carnal and sold under sin. And I looked that up. How is Paul saying that he's sold under sin? That word sold it, 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 it means to traffic or dispose of or to sell into slavery. Another definition is of a person who is bribed to give himself up wholly to another person's will. So picture this. Satan comes to you to bribe you with various temptations. He comes to you and he says, it tastes so good. It looks so fine. It will make you feel amazing. You deserve it. 
It will take away your pain. You know you want it. Just take it. Just go there. The risk is worth it. He's bribing you to give up your will to sin, to give over who you want to be to something that is destructive in your life, that can take you down the wrong road, that can make things spiral out of control. In verse 15, he says, I don't really understand myself, for I I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I want, uh, but if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with the law. So I'm not the one doing the wrong. It's sin that lives in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. And I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, am I not really the one doing the wrong? It's it's sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Verse 22 says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And verse 25, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So sometimes Paul can be really confusing in what he's trying to teach us, and other times he just comes off as very, to me, refreshing. Like he's just being honest. He's saying there's a, there's a battle going on all the time. We have this original sin from Adam and Eve passed down through the generations of humanity that are always fighting against what is good. Right from the very start in the Garden of Eden, there's a battle for the minds of God, between God and his people. And people lost. You know, we, we talk about killing our old self and how sin no longer has any power over us. And Paul just says, you know what? It's true. It doesn't. But there's still a battle. There's still a war raging. My flesh is fighting against my spirit. My body is fighting against my soul. I, I want to do the right thing, and I inevitably end up in the wrong place, yelling at my wife again, or kicking the cat, or driving too fast, or whatever it is. It's like there's... I just, I don't know what comes over me. And Paul is saying, it's your sinful desires. It's your flesh. There's a battle always for your soul, for your mind. Like we know that our soul is safe with God in heaven. It it, it will go on. It will continue. But it's the stuff that's going to be left off in this world that we will be shedding. It is corrupted. It's getting old. It's getting achy. and, And we need pills. And we need surgeries. And all these things that... You know, that's the old body, the flesh, that's going to be left behind. But that's what we're still fighting. And, and one day, we'll get rid of it, once and for all. 1 John 1.6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We fool ourselves if we think we can battle sin on our own. 
We're not strong enough. We don't have the tools. It's, it, it, it's Christ in us that gives us the ability to deal with the power of sin. This body is corrupt, decaying, often ravaged by a former way of life and the consequences of sin. And our flesh battles against our mind, spirit, and soul, trying to drag us back down into the world from which we came. Out of nowhere, we explode in anger. We become jealous. We covet. We have pure, impure thoughts about someone who walks by. We act selfishly. We have to immediately call on Christ in us to help get our mind back on track, to help get our... our, our, our temptations under control and to not give in. We need his strength to manage. Having Christ in us does not mean we are going to be sin-free. It means we have a helper that can call on, we can call on at any time and any place to assist us in battling the sin that calls to us. There's sometimes we just, we react in the moment. We get caught off guard. We say something that we didn't want to say. Now we've got to apologize. We have to go make things right with that person like when, like Paul saying, when am I ever going to stop messing up? But thanks be to God who is in us, that helps us. Do you want to try to live a perfect life? I don't, did, did any of you ever have perfectionist parents? You just can never get it right. Like every time, like go vacuum, you go vacuum, and then 10 minutes later, they're out with the vacuum going over it again because it wasn't done just right. Or make the bed, okay, and then they come in, and it's just, you know, you just forgot this part here. Like, every time you do something, it's not good enough. And you get, sometimes you just quit trying. Like, what's the point? That can happen in the Christian life, You're trying to be perfect and always feeling guilty, always feeling like you don't measure up, feeling like you're never going to be good enough. God can't love me. I keep messing up. The title of this message is, you know, the battle of a lifetime. It's a battle of a lifetime all the way through. Like, hopefully we can deal with some things through our life and get over them and, and resolve them and, and have power over them and, and put some things down, but there's always something else that might come up. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we don't have that glorified body yet. We're still in the flesh, and so we need a helper to help us get through the challenges that we face in life. There's no remedy for sin or antidote to the power of Satan apart from Jesus. I was reading in uh, A.B. Simpson's uh, books the, this last week. He's the founder of the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance uh, churches. He's got a lot of interesting perspectives. He was, he was heavily influenced by the holiness movement and called the higher life. And to say you can, you can rise above um, the, 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 the daily struggles and challenges that we face with the power of God. Some of the things he said was uh, he learned how to not just believe in Jesus or know that Jesus lives in him, but he learned how to let the life of Christ be placed over his life. How to let the righteousness of Jesus become his righteousness. How to let the resurrection power of Jesus become his resurrection power. It's, it's, it's a daily putting on the armor of God. It's a daily recognition of Christ in me that can help us get through and battle with the temptations we're going to face. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't, I don't believe in this concept of instant 
instant sanctification, meaning that you are made perfect the moment you believe in Christ. I believe in what we call progressive sanctification, which means every day we get stronger. Every day when we submit more of us in our, our will and we learn how to deal with the struggles of the past and the insecurities that we've carried with us for years and years, every day when Christ becomes, it's like John the Baptist and Jesus, you know, he must became, become greater and I must become less. And that's, there's a transition in our life where he becomes greater and we become, we become less and allowing him to live through us. So it's an ever-increasing obedience to Christ as we release more and more of our life into God's hands. We, we trust him with our future. We trust him with our kids. We trust him with our, with our, our jobs and, and our future and all of that. Uh, we learn how to release ourselves. It, it doesn't happen instantaneously. Here's the secret to resisting the devil and finding victory over sin in your life and an ever-increasing ability. First of all, we have to abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ is, is a position. We, 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 we step out of the world and out of ourselves and we step into a life of, of Christ himself. We, we want him to fill us, to, to guide us, to teach us to give us the power. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you. And the As a branch can't bear any fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. God, help me right now. God, give me the power right now. God, guide me right now because I, I, I need your help right now. He says, you are abiding in me. You, you got it. Like, I'm, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to lead you and guide you and empower you. So what does this look like abiding in Christ? Well, you got to be filled with the Spirit. This is part of what abiding looks like. Ephesians 5.18 says, to be filled with the Spirit. Pretty simple. That means we have to invite the Spirit. It doesn't automatically, when we get up and say, oh, oh yeah, I'm filled with the Spirit. No, you got to spend some time with Him. you got to bring His Word into your life. You have to recognize His presence each day as you're driving in the car, as you're getting the kids dressed in the morning. Like, God, this is your day. You created it. Help me bring glory to you today. Help my kids do what the teachers say today. May they be helpful. Great citizens in our community. We have to walk in the Spirit. We can't just stand there being filled. We got to move. We got to go about our day. We got to make a living. We have to, things to do. And as we go, we allow the Spirit to guide our steps. I, I know this lady, and, and, and I find her very odd, but this is a true story. <laughs> she, she would go to somebody's house that she's never been to before, and she would not take a GPS or a map. She would just pray her way all the way to a person's house. She would turn left when she sensed the Spirit saying, turn left, and she would just turn left. And as she's going, oh, I feel I should go to the right now. So she would go to the right, and then she would, she would end up at the person's house. Like, I, I haven't had that ability. I need my, my watch or my, my phone, GPS. To, but she literally let the Spirit guide her physically through her day. And that's what we're talking about, being filled and, and walking in the Spirit, and driving in the Spirit. We're also going to be led by the Spirit. Romans eight fourteen says, For many as are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Being led by the Spirit proves that you are in Christ and that he is in you. So why do you need to know this? 
Well, because you're in a fight of a lifetime. And sometimes the old world, the old flesh, gets the best, the best of us. And at that moment, we need to stop. We need to confess our sins. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need, we need again, a fresh work of grace in our life. You see, some of the, the holiness movement people, they would say, as soon as you sin again, uh, because you should live a perfect life, if you sin, you lose your salvation at that moment, and you've got to start all over again. Uh, that's that's kind of weary, losing your salvation four or five times a day, or, you know, and I don't know if you ever really know when you're saved or not, because maybe you forgot to confess something. Maybe inadvertently you sinned, and that one sin you never confessed, and now you're, you can't make it to heaven. Like, I don't understand that aspect. But Jesus says, if you sin and you confess your sin, I'm faithful to forgive you of that sin. We can live a spirit-filled life. We can walk in the spirit. We can be led by the spirit each day as we continually re-surrender each day into his hands. We need to learn how to let Christ live, not just in us, but through us as we impact the world around us. The last verse I want to leave you with is Colossians 1. 27, it says, Christ in us is the hope of glory. Like that's, that's what we're going for. That's our hope. And glory is that one day he will come back and bring us to be with him, and we will shed this old tent that we're living in and be clothed in a new heavenly body as he was. It says we will, we will become like he is one day. But we're not there yet. <laughs> and we have, a, like Paul, we fight the fight. And we, we press on towards the finish line. We want to we finish the race. We want to finish strong, but we need his help. We need God to help us along the way. So if you messed up, you and, you and Paul are in, are in the same boat. You and me, all of us, don't, don't say I'm just a bad Christian. Say I've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot more of me that I need to give to Jesus. I've got a lot more ways to go, and I need help. Not just from Jesus or the, through prayer and the Holy Spirit, but from one another. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have accountability. That's why we have women's studies and sit around the table and talk about, about how it's going and where you need prayer. And I screamed at my three-year-old again this morning. She didn't put the cap on the toothpaste again. It's like, we can help you with that. <laughs> it's okay. But we help one another to grow. We're family. And we should be able to be honest and and open with one another and say, you know, I'm struggling, I need help. I, had, I was meeting with my uh, a business men's group that I, I work with, and uh, we were supposed to cover a book chapter, and one of the guys says, you know, can we not do the book today? I got an issue with my, with my stepson. Uh, we're, we're screaming at each other all the time. And I don't, he pushes my buttons, I just react, and I get angry, and I say, and then I'm apologizing all the time. I said, yeah, let's, let's talk. Let's pray for you. Let's help you in this journey to be more like Christ in that situation, to be, to be the dad you want to be. That's what Paul's saying, that we need help. We're not there yet. We will be there in glory one day. But in the meantime, it's a fight of a lifetime. We are going to have the Lord's Supper now, if you take out your elements. And the, the things I want to bring out in, in the Lord's Supper today, thanks, Neil, is, is this picture there's, there's other ways of, of thinking of the, of the Lord's Supper, and uh, some people want to believe that when you eat this, it turns into the actual body and blood of Christ. I don't, 
I don't see that in the scriptures, but what I do see is a, a taking Christ in to us, a letting him come into our life. When he talks about abiding in Christ, he says, I will come and I will make my, I'll bring my Father and we'll make a home in you. So let me pray for the, the wafer here as it represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. Father God, uh, you know we are weak. <laughs> and we are perfect instruments for you to be strong in. We, like Paul, recognize that we don't deserve the grace that you give to us. We are constantly doing the things that we know better not to do. And we don't do the things that we've sometimes promised to do. And I pray, God, that you would help us to know more of Christ. Allow him to have more control in our life, in our heart. And Father, as we eat this wafer, may we remember that Christ, even though he had a will, um, he submitted it to you in the Garden of Eden to say, not my will, but yours be done. He, he had to make the choice right then and there to continue to be obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. Father God, he is our example, and we too need your help to be strong in the face of temptations and struggles that we face each day. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. So as you eat this, just think about bringing Christ again into your life. The juice represents the blood that was shed for us on the cross. The blood represents the life. Without the blood, there is no life. As, as blood seeps out, so does life to the point of death. Christ died for us, and his blood cleansed us from all unrighteousness. His blood, though stains clothing, can wash us whiter than snow and make us pure. His blood is the reason why we can confess our sin and find forgiveness. His blood is everything for us. Without his willing sacrifice, we would not have any, any hope of ever being reconciled to God. So as you drink this into your body, think again symbolically of how you're taking Christ in, abiding in him and letting him live in you, cleansing you from unrighteousness. Maybe if there's unconfessed sin in your own life, even this morning, maybe you take a moment just to confess that and ask for forgiveness and let him, again, fill you with his presence and his power and his spirit. So let's drink this together, remembering the sacrifice that was done for us on the cross. Father God, thank you for the sacrifice of your son, the shedding of his blood that cleanses us from unrighteousness. Thank you, God, that we have the power to overcome temptation through your spirit in us. May we walk worthy of the calling that you've given to us. And when we do stumble, Father God, may, may we quickly repent and quickly confess and quickly be restored back into the relationship you, you desire to have with us. Let us continually submit our will to yours so that we would have that abundant life you promised us here on earth. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.